reading it comes from 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1 through 7. Today's sermon title is Seeking God. Again, that's 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. Our sermon title is Seeking God. This is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the groves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem and in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali in their ruins all around. He broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to be with you this first Sunday in the new year. As you can tell from the scripture reading, we are starting a new Sunday morning teaching series today. You realize that there is nothing magical about starting a new year. There's nothing that is going to supercharge your resolutions in January more than it would in July. But it is a time where we've been conditioned to just reflect on our lives. Time to think about where we've been, time to think about where we're going, and are there any changes that we might want to make along the way? Go to the gym a little bit more or whatever. So the pastors and the elders thought that maybe it would be a good time for us to do that as a church as well. That as we enter into 2024, that it would be a time for us to reflect on what is it that makes us a church. Time to remember why we're here, to refocus on being a church. We talk about church planting, about wanting to see other churches birthed out of Renewal Main Line which means it's really crucial to think about what is it that we would be trying to plant. And if you dig down to the bedrock, to the foundation of who we are, then that has to do with us being a people who are passionately in love with God because he's passionately in love with us. That has to be our foundation, the thing that brings us all together, that unites us, the thing that all of our programs, our ministries, our outreach, our service activities, that, that all of those get built on. Because we could have all of those things, but if we're not doing them out of a radical love for God that is fueled by his radical love for us, we're not really a church doing good things. But we would be doing good things for some other reason other than love for God or, and love from God. Which means what? We would be doing good things, but not as God's people, because we would not have his desires 
on our hearts for the people around us. So we would actually be doing things for them, but not offering them what he would offer. And if that's the case, I'd like to suggest that's not a church that would be worth planting. I've been thinking about an article. Maybe it'll, it'll flesh this out a little bit. An article that's gotten stuck in my mind. It's an article that starts out by talking about how different God's kingdom is from anything else that you find here on earth. And it talks about how if you want God, then you have to completely embrace this radically new way of life along with him because that new way of life comes with him. You can't have one without the other. And the author ends this article by talking about two people, two people who were living in what we would call an alternative lifestyle together, but they started to feel the tug of God on their hearts. They knew that how they were living was wrong in God's eyes. They knew what Scripture says. They knew how Christians believe. But there's something inside of them that wanted God anyway. And they thought at first maybe they could have God without having his sexual ethics. And so they tried going to a couple different churches. They went to this one church. This one church embraced them, loved them. But the church made it clear that, the, that God thought that their lifestyle was sinful. So they went to a different church that affirmed them in their lifestyle. Two churches, one that told them what they wanted to hear, one that didn't. And the couple discovered that, what, that the church that affirmed them wasn't satisfying because there was something missing there. So after a month of trying that church, the two people talked to each other, and the one person said to the other, God's not in this church. He was, however, at the other one. That gives us then a choice. We could either go to the church where God was and they didn't accept our lifestyle, or we could go to this other church where they accepted us, but God was not. And so she said to her partner, you can do what you want. I'm going to go to the church where God is. What's going on there? These two people were loved and embraced by a community that was faithful to Scripture, and at the same time, because the community was faithful to Scripture, they were invited to change just like every one of us is invited to change who enters into the kingdom of God. They were invited to experience God's love and then love him back by living in a way that he thought was good for them. And what has sort of stuck in my mind over the last several weeks is what is it that made that attractive to them? Why would you give up what you wanted what you loved, what you already had, what your society said was just fine, why would you do, give all that up? You would only do that if what you got was worth so much more to you. You would only do that because you got God himself, because you experienced a love and a presence that you can't find anywhere else on earth. And it was with being with him, connecting with him, that drew these two people to him. That is something that no community organization, no program can give, regardless of how good those organizations and programs are. That is something, however, that you find in the church. And that has to be central to us then as a church. It has to be what is embedded in our DNA at our deepest core. This sense that it's just obvious, you, you spend a little bit of time with us, it's just obvious that there is a profound love for God in us that is, in even, that is in response to his even more profound love for us. 
And that it's that experience of being loved by him, loving him in return, that then unites us with each other. That that is what we run to when we need to be revitalized together. That that is what makes us a church. That's what you see in Josiah's life. This sense of how special God is, that he's worth doing anything for. He's worth changing anything for, because now you actually get him. That's why we're going to spend the next six weeks studying his life. Now, this is the point where I would just want to dive into the text, into Chronicles, but I'm aware that we don't often read the book of Chronicles. We don't often read Old Testament, and so this may be a little foreign to us. So if you would bear with me, just give, let, I want to give a little bit of an introduction to why are we doing this? <laughs> what is the Old Testament? Why do we even read the Old Testament? There are a lot of voices right now, if you listen in the larger evangelical world, that are arguing the Old Testament is just really not all that relevant to us as modern believers. And so we can pretty much just ignore it, focus on the New Testament. That's one set of voices you hear out there. There's another set of voices that say, well, the, the, the Old Testament, it, it's just kind of a bunch of morality tales. It's a little bit like Aesop's fables or the Greek myths bunch of stories that are supposed to tell you how to be a good person and have a good life. And so you read through the Old Testament and you pick out these different people and you learn from them that you should be brave like David, that you should be humble like Moses, wise like Solomon. And if you are, then things will work out pretty well for you. That's not what the Old Testament is about. Instead, the Old Testament is full of what? It's full of stories, it's full of poetry, it's full of preaching that's trying to help you understand what God is doing to rescue and restore a universe that has run away from him. And that that process that he's involved in culminates in Jesus. And those stories, those poetry, the preaching, it tells you then how do you actually respond to him and live with him as he enters into your life to rescue and restore you. And so we're looking at Josiah for the next several weeks, not so that we have a model of what does it look like to be a good king? None of us are kings. What does it look like to be a good CEO, a good manager, a, a good teacher in your class? It's not the point of Josiah's life. We're looking at him because he shows us what a faithful response to God looks like when you live among a people who are not faithful to God, when you live among a people who worship all kinds of other things along with God and they don't seem to notice that that's a problem. Now, who's Josiah? Josiah comes toward the end of the kings of Israel. Uh, it's the end of Israel's history as an independent nation state. And this is a history that is several hundred years long that's really heartbreaking to read. You learn early on that God went out of his way to rescue his people from Egypt, to call them into a special, intimate relationship with himself. And you learn throughout this several hundred year period of time that they just could not keep themselves from running after all the gods of the nations around them. And you learn that that was true of the kings as well. There were a couple good kings. There were many more who were not. Kings who did not love God more than anything else, but who trusted in the same things that the surrounding nations did. And they led those people into trusting those things as well. Now let me urge you, it's the beginning of the new year, if you have not read the history of Israel recently, 
Let me urge you, maybe do that over these next several weeks. If you did one chapter a day, you would pretty much end up at the same time that we end this series. And what that would do is it would give you a better sense of what is it that Josiah is up against in his life. It would give you the context for his life, and it would give you a sense of why he's doing what he's doing. Now, if you're a little more familiar with the Old Testament, you realize that there are actually two histories of the kings. You can find them in either the books of Kings or the book of Chronicles. You have first and second, but they're really just a book of Kings and a book of Chronicles. And those two histories are similar, but they have different emphases. And the reason they have different emphases is because they are written to people who are living in different time periods. And so they are trying to answer a different set of questions. So the book of First and Second Kings, that's written sometime during the exile, when God's people have been taken out of their nation. They're now living in the land of Babylon. And the book is wrestling with the question, why are we here? If God made such great promises to our ancestors, and if he is all-powerful, how is it possible that another nation crushed us, took away our nation from us, and took away our temple? And the answer that the book of Kings gives over and over and over is, we are here because our kings led us astray. They led us into sin. They led us into rejecting God, and we followed them, even though God had warned us over and over and over not to do that. That's why we're here in exile. If you want to understand the stuff that Josiah is facing in his life, it's really helpful to have that context as it makes sense of what he does. That's why Sally, my wife, and I are reading through Kings now after dinner. We just started. We're just going one chapter a night. And I want to invite you, if you don't have something else that you're doing for family worship, maybe join us. I should say, though, that this is a, a set of history books that's very far removed from our present time. So there's a lot of stuff in there that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. There are things that we come across and we're like, why is that in Scripture, period? We found this little book by Dale Ralph Davis to be really helpful. It's a commentary, but it's a commentary written in English so that it's understandable. It doesn't have all kinds of strange language in it. And he's, uh, Sally thinks he's funny at times. Uh, it, it's easy to read. The chapters are short, 10, 15 minutes each. It's called First Kings, The Wisdom and the Folly. If you like this, there's one called Second Kings, but maybe if you're like us and you're not understanding what you just read, this would be helpful. That's Dale Ralph Davis, First Kings, The Wisdom and the Folly. So that's the Book of Kings. That's what it's trying to answer. Book of Chronicles, different question. This is written several hundred years later. It's after the people have been back in the land. They're back out from exile. And the question for them is, since we blew it so badly, since we did not keep faith with our God, is there still hope for us? Yes, we're back in the land, but will God still love us? Even though we've been faithless, will he keep faith with us? And the answer that you get through the book of Chronicles is yes, if you will turn back to him, if you will seek him with all of your heart. And Josiah's life shows you the two things you learn out of Kings and Chronicles. It shows you how bad things had gotten so that he had to take the radical steps that he did, but also shows you that there's real hope. That even if you've messed up your life as badly as Israel did, 
there's still hope for you to be friends with God because God still wants a friendship with you. And so Josiah's life gives you hope that you can move toward God, and it shows you what does that actually look like. What are the litmus tests? What are the markers that say you're actually on that, move, that road of being better friends with him? Okay, that's all introduction. More briefly then, let's look at today's passage. What do we learn here? I'll pull it out in three things. First, we learn that if you want to be friends with God, you need to set your heart to seek him. Which second, always leads to a life of repentance, to getting rid of the things that took you away from him. But third, you learn that seeking God can be lonely. That you should not expect a lot of support and encouragement from the world around you. So quickly, with our remaining time today, what's it look like to be friends with God? It means you seek him, you repent, even if no one else does. Verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he began his reign in a time that was a real mess. His father had been brutally murdered after being king only just a couple of years. His grandfather had ruled for 55 years before that. And his grandfather used that incredibly long reign to plunge Israel into all kinds of idolatry. So now here's Josiah. Here's this boy, eight years old, not very mature, no leadership experience, who has lived his entire life in a world steeped in idolatry. What he's used to is a world filled with high places, other worship sites. He's used to a world filled with Asherim and Baals, gods of the surrounding nations. He's used to a world filled with carved and metal images, with people offering incense to all kinds of things. Josiah is used to a world where people are desperately hoping that somehow all of this religious activity is going to make their lives better. That somehow this will make the gods and the goddesses happy so that the deities will then be nice to them, will give them what they want. <laughs> the people don't see anything odd about turning to all these things, trusting in them, along with trusting in God. For them, that's just normal. They're what? They're, they're hedging their bets. They're covering their bases. And along comes Josiah, young man, product of that world, formed, shaped, influenced by that world, and he decides, I'm going in a different direction. He goes against all of his social conditioning, and in his eighth year on the throne, 16 years old, he began to seek the God of David, his father. Now, what's that mean? He began to seek what God named himself as Yahweh. This is the God who called Abraham to leave his idolatry behind and to trust Yahweh alone. This is the God who rescued Israel out of Egypt, proving that all the Egyptian gods were absolutely nothing compared to him. This is the God who kept calling Israel to put no other gods before him to trust in nothing else other than himself. This is the God who took David, a shepherd boy, and made David a shepherd king because David had a heart 
that wanted God like it wanted nothing else. This is the God who Josiah starts to seek. And already in doing that, he's challenging us. He's challenging me. It makes me ask, what, what did I set my heart to seek when I was 16? What was the most important thing I thought that I could set my heart on? What did I think would give me greater security, greater happiness, greater joy than anything else? Was it the one true and living God? Or was it my driving permit that I thought would, you know, give me, be my ticket to freedom and independence? Was it my reputation on the sports field, my ticket to being accepted by people who didn't respect me? Was it going to college, my ticket to having a future? Was it Diane or Patty or Debbie or someone to have a future with? At 16 years old, what did I set my heart to seek? What did you set your heart to seek? It's an important question for all of us. Josiah is very convicting to me here. It's important for all of us. It's an especially important opportunity if you're younger. Because some of you are not looking back on 16, but you're 16 now, or you're close enough. You're, you're a lot closer to 16 than your parents are. What do you learn here? You learn that going all out in loving God and being faithful is not for old people. God thinks it's for young people. God does not dismiss you because he doesn't think you're old enough to seek him. He thinks actually that being young is an advantage because it means you have that much more time to enjoy him and love him. God doesn't think that you can only be friends with him if you've had a great background. In fact, sometimes the worse that your life has been, the more you can appreciate what he offers. In other words, students, teens, young people, regardless of how old you are, regardless of what your family or society are like, this is a passage for you. It's a passage that says, don't think that you have to get things sorted out in life before you pursue God. Pursue him now. Don't let other things push him out of your life. Don't think that you have to get older in order for Christianity to make sense to you. Seek him out now. If you have that sense that he's tugging at your heart, give in to that. Respond to him. All of those things that I mentioned I was dreaming about when I was 16, the things that you've been taught all your lives that you need to have in order to have a good life, things that you have to set your heart on, all of those things are temporary. They are things you can enjoy now. But don't make them the most important things that you seek because they won't last. At some point, you'll have to give them all back. A relationship with God, though, will last. And it is so much better than anything else this world can offer you. That's what Josiah set his heart on. To seek the God of David, his father to be devoted to him, to orient his whole life around knowing God, just like you would know any other person. He set himself to know what God likes, set himself to know what God is like, so that he could love, live well with this God. Which led, point two, to repentance. It led to getting rid of any other kind of thing that he could lean on. 
picking up the text in the middle of verse 3. When he was in his 12th year, do the math here, that means that Josiah is now 20 years old. When he was in his 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and metal images, and they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them, scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Twenty years old, Josiah looks around at his nation. He's the king of the southern part of Israel, the king of Judah. He looks around at Jerusalem and Judah and saw all of these rival gods everywhere. All rivals for his affection. All the things that he and his people had been taught to trust in. Other than the God who had loved them. Who had called them to himself. Josiah sees all of this and he decides it's time to clean house. He decided to get rid of everything that stood in the way of the people having an undivided heart. And he worked really, really hard to root all of those things out. As you read this passage, the verbs just start to stack on each other. He purged, he chopped down, he cut down, he broke in pieces, made dust of them. And you start to get this building sense of two different things here. First, you get a sense, man, Idolatry was really pervasive in the land. There was a lot of it. You could just see it everywhere you went. You get that sense of how much there was of it. But you also get a sense of how much energy Josiah threw into this. You realize he's all in. This is not a political stunt. He is passionate about eliminating any rival to this God who has loved the people. Passionate about making a difference in the kingdom of God, which again, young people, is an argument for why you seek the Lord now. Because when you get older, you start to run out of steam. Start to run out of energy for seeing things change in God's kingdom. It's easier when you're older to accept the status quo, to just give in to the way things are. You don't have to give in, rest of us but it's easier. It's easier to assume this is how the church has always been. This is the way the church is always going to be. Josiah doesn't do that. He sees that relying on anything else other than this God is killing his people, and so he wades in to make a difference. And he does that with all of the zeal and all the enthusiasm of a young man who's got a lot of strength and energy to give. You learn here that there is an important place in the kingdom of God for young people an important place to make a difference in this world if you're seeking God. You say, okay, but how? how? How are we supposed to do that? How are you supposed to do that? None of us is a king, but all of us are responsible for someone else. We're responsible for the people who are around us because what you and I do creates an environment that the people around us then are impacted by. I don't know if you remember Genesis chapter 4. That's the story of Cain and Abel. In that story, God confronts Cain about killing his brother. He comes to Cain and he asks, where's your brother? Cain tries to duck that question. He asks God a question in response. Am I my, am I my brother's keeper? 
Am I responsible for my brother? Responsible for where he is and for what he's doing? And effectively, God says to him, yes. Yes, you are. Attitude is wrong, but the question is right. You are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for interacting with your brother in a way that will lead to what's best for him. You see Josiah here accepting that he's responsible for the people around him. Just like you and I have responsibility for how we impact the people around us. We're responsible because on a daily basis we are either going to set up idols in our own lives that will tempt other people to trust them or we will seek the Lord by not turning aside to the right hand or to the left. Now what do I mean by that? Let me give you an illustration. If I spend more time talking about my finances, my financial planning, saving up for retirement, if I spend more time talking about those things than I do about my confidence, that God will always provide for his people and give them everything that they need. If I focus on money as what is going to give me a good life, that creates an environment for the people around me, for my friends, my family. It's an environment that says, I trust my plans, my resources for my future, more than I trust the Lord's plans and resources. This is the altar that I worship at. Would you like to worship with me there? And so my words, my actions set up an environment that invites other people to trust more in wealth for their security than they trust in God to provide for them. I set that altar up that then invites other people to worship. Let me give you another illustration. If I spend more time teaching my children about which colleges they should apply to, then I spend teaching them about the Lord who gave them their minds and their talents to use in college. Or if I spend more time and money on prepping them for the SAT than I do on helping them understand Scripture and how it applies to them. Or if I talk more about the grades that they get than about what they're learning about God as they study the world that he's made, I'm teaching them that God is good, but education is great. I'm teaching them that they should trust education to give them the best life possible, and that any commitment to the Lord comes second to what they really need to do in order to get ahead in this world. What you and I trust in is what we will talk about it's what we will invest in. And that creates an environment that invites others to trust that too. It invites them, use the illustration here, to burn incense with us at the high places of our society. Josiah realizes this, and because he's the king, he has more responsibility for more people than any of us do. But he does show us that we all have responsibility for some people, even if you're a young person. We have responsibility for those who are around us. And so we have the same calling to be just as diligent to root out idolatry as Josiah was. We have the same responsibility to see it for what it is and to turn from it as strongly as we possibly can. And you start to realize here that this turning away from idols, this is a normal part of the Christian life. It's just a normal part of a relationship with God. This is what Scripture will talk about as repentance, about turning away from lifeless idols in order to serve the living God. And what you see here is that repentance is not a one-time thing. 
but that repentance is something that is ongoing. It happens throughout your entire life. That when you seek, when you set your heart to seek the Lord, then all of life, in a sense, becomes repentance. See, there's an initial repentance in Josiah's life when he's 16. That's when he makes this decision, I'm going to seek God and I'm going to seek him alone. As verse 2 puts it, he decides, I'm not going to turn to the right hand or to the left. That's a phrase that comes out of the book of Deuteronomy. And it means that you are absolutely loyal, absolutely faithful, devoted to everything that God has said. So at age 16, Josiah has this point in his life that changes how he lives. This moment sets him down a different course in life than he had been on earlier. And so in that sense, at age 16, he repents of how he's lived those first 16 years. But it's not till four years later that he then sets out to destroy the idols that are all around him, the ones that even four years earlier he had been okay with. So he begins with an initial repentance at age 16 that continues, deepens, has a greater impact on more areas of life. If you think about it, that just makes sense, right? The more that you pursue a relationship with God, the closer that you get to him, the more you get to know him, the more that you start to see things in you, around you, that just aren't right. Things that just don't fit with being friends with him. You see more of them, you see how much more dangerous they are than you used to think they were. And as you go closer, grow closer to the Lord, as you see how harmful some of these other things are, you realize, I just can't ignore them. <laughs> I just can't leave them be anymore. But I have to do something about them. I have to do the hard work of uprooting them out of my life. That is a normal part of the Christian life. It's normal because God's way of life challenges, we already said this, challenges every person's life in this room. There is not a single one. We all drifted away from God. There's not a single person whose life right now lines up perfectly with God's. We all are called all the time to come closer to him. And just like with Josiah, as you spend more time with him, you are less comfortable with things that you didn't really notice before. Now those things that you used to be comfortable with, they make you uncomfortable. And if no one's ever said that to you, that process can just feel really weird at times, right? Okay, we all have those moments. We come to God, there's clearly a bunch of stuff in our life that's not right, things that we're well aware are not right, and so we repent, we turn from that, we ask his forgiveness, we receive his forgiveness, we receive his love, and we feel pretty good at that moment, right? We, we, we feel like, man, I'm, I clean up my act, I'm better now than I used to be. And then we start reading scripture. Start going to church. Start hanging around with people who have walked with God longer. And suddenly we're confronted with new things in our lives. I'm confronted with new things in my life. Things that we've been doing, that we've been okay with for years, that we start to realize maybe, maybe we shouldn't have been okay with that. And it's very tempting in that moment, if you're not expecting this, very tempting in that moment to get discouraged, to get depressed, to start telling yourself, man, I, I, I'm, I, I'm just a really horrible Christian. I'm no good at this. Or it's really tempting to get angry. <laughs> to get angry, especially at the people who show those things to you, to stop wanting to hear from them, be around them. Ashamed of those things that we see. We thought we were better than that. Depression, anger, those things make perfect sense. 
it looks in that moment like we're getting worse when actually the opposite is the truth because the truth is that we're coming closer to God and as we do that we start to see things that God always knew were there we're the ones who are surprised we used to be okay with them and God says no it's not okay to be okay with that anymore Josiah 20 years old is now seeing the things he grew up with in his society in a new light things that at one time felt familiar that he used to think were just fine he's now starting to see them like God sees them he did not set out to destroy those false gods when he was eight years old he sat on the throne he had the power to do so at the time but he didn't wasn't seeking the Lord yet he also didn't start destroying them when he was 16 years old had only begun to seek the Lord it's not until four years later as he's grown closer to this God that he can no longer stand the idolatry that's been baked into his society it takes him a while to feel about those things like God feels about them you should expect that same dynamic in your life that the more devoted you are to God the more you get to know him the more that you will hate anything that takes you away from him the more serious you'll be about rooting it out of your life that's one of those very important litmus tests one important way that you can tell that you have been seeking him it's that you enter into a life of repentance willing to willing to see the ugliness of anything that takes you away from this God who loves you working really hard to get rid of it but point three and this will be quick you may have to do this kind of seeking and repenting without a whole lot of support or encouragement from the world around you there's a loneliness to Josiah that only comes out when you think about the larger history of Israel see there were a number of other kings who had initiated reforms and there's something different in Josiah's day from those earlier reforms when those other kings did things the author of Chronicles points out that the people of God all got on board that the nation as a whole was behind the king and behind what he was doing so for instance Jehoshaphat in chapter 20 proclaims a fast and we're told verse 4 that all Judah gathered to seek the Lord and they gathered to seek the Lord so the verses 13 and 18 all Judah could stand before the Lord and worship him they were all behind the king in what he called them to do chapter 30 King Hezekiah calls the nation to return to the Lord and we hear that the nation had a united heart to obey verse 20 that a very large assembly gathered verse 13 a large number of people verse 18 that the whole congregation decide we're going to extend this time of worship together in verse 23 there's a corporate backing of the king a joining in of the community with these earlier reformers and get to chapter 34 and that sense of hey we're all together in seeking God that sense is missing when you come to Josiah instead as you read through chapter 34 you read to 35 he stands out as the primary agent in his reforms with everyone else just taking a back seat so even in our passage verse 3 he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem verse 4 he cut down the incense altars he broke in pieces the Asherim he made dust of the images 
when other people are breaking down the altars of Baal, it's because they are in his presence. Implication, if he's not standing there, they're not doing that. <coughs> Josiah's reforms are more thorough, more far-reaching than any other king's. But the people are not engaged. He does not have the same widespread support in his reforms as the earlier kings did. And Jeremiah the prophet underlines that assessment. Jeremiah started his ministry one year after Josiah began his reformation. And there is not one encouraging word in Jeremiah's prophecies about what Josiah did. Not one recorded word that God said to Israel, the way that you handled that was good. You followed well. What does that tell you about Josiah's reforms? It tells you that the people were not gripped. It tells you that while Josiah could take away their altars in high places, he could change their landscape. Josiah could not change their hearts. They did what he made them to do. They broke down the altars. But they didn't do it because they loved God or valued how much God loved them. They didn't do it with a heart that turned back to God. Instead, they did what they were forced to do. And God knew it. That's why he talks to them about it throughout the prophecy of Jeremiah. Josiah pursued the Lord and repented, largely on his own. There was no crowd cheering him on, no movement joining him. And that'll probably be true of you as well, at least at some point in your life if you set your heart to seek the Lord. If you choose to spend your life seeking God and repenting, you should not expect the rest of the world to stand up and urge you to keep going. Parents, let me talk to you for a moment. There are going to be days when your kids will seem to want nothing to do with God, and you will feel very lonely in your family as you seek him. Married couples, there will be days when it feels like you're the only one in your family who cares about what God wants. And you're going to feel lonely as you seek him. Teens, young people, in this world at school with your friends, you are definitely going to feel lonely as you seek him. None of us should expect that the people around us will always support us as we seek God. So then the question is, what will? Look to Jesus. Because as lonely as you might feel at times in seeking God, Jesus felt lonelier. That's what Josiah is actually telling us about, even more than he tells us about ourselves. Jesus tells us in John chapter 5 that all of Scripture speaks about him, that Josiah's life doesn't point first to us, but that his life points first to Jesus. Jesus is who? He's the ultimate shepherd king. Jesus is the one who saw most clearly how faithless his people are, and he's the one who knew best what, what we needed. He knew that the problem of worshiping the wrong things was a problem that's deeply embedded inside of our hearts. And that if our hearts are not changed, it does not matter what you do to us externally and take away from us. It won't make a bit of difference. Jesus is the shepherd king who knew what we needed. And he's the shepherd king who was completely rejected as he tried to lead his people to God. 
He stood all alone by himself, waging war against idolatry. That's what John 1.11 tells us. That Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Tells us that his people did not buy into what he was doing. But despite our rejection, Jesus remained faithful to God. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so he loved his people to the end. He did for you and me what we needed him to do in order to free us from seeking after something other than God. The Old Testament scholar Ray Dillard points out that based on what other kings had done earlier in the book of Kings, that verse 5 in our passage implies that in order to burn the bones of the priests on their own altars, that Josiah had to kill the priests first. That's how he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem, the landscape. These faithless priests had offered God-hating sacrifices that had defiled Judah and Jerusalem. So in order to cleanse the nation, those who had sinned had to pay with their lives. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, tells us something that's hard for our modern ears to hear. It tells us that according to the law of God, almost everything is purified with blood, and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It tells us that it takes the sacrifice of a life to bring cleansing when there's sin. That when you reject God and his ways, you reject life itself, and that a life has to be given to pay for that rejection of life. And so Josiah killed the priests and burned their bones on their altars. And that wasn't enough. Josiah cleansed Judah and Jerusalem physically, but he couldn't cleanse the hearts of his people. Jesus, however, is a better shepherd king, and he does something totally different. This shepherd king who knows the depth of your need does not kill you or burn your bones on the altars that you have set up in your own life. He doesn't take your life to cleanse his universe that you've defiled, but instead he allowed himself to be killed in order to cleanse you. And he then experienced the burning wrath of God that was way beyond anything that ever burned up any bones. Jesus does not demand your life from you to cleanse you. He offers you his instead. Why would you set your heart to seek God, knowing that that's going to mean a lifetime of ongoing repentance? Why would you risk being lonely and not supported in seeking God? Why would you do that? Because there's not a single thing that you've ever sought. There's not a single thing that you've ever sacrificed for that you have worshipped that has sacrificed for you like this Jesus has. Nothing that's ever given more to you than it demanded from you. Nothing that has ever offered to pay for you so that you are now totally clean before God. Find this one, th this shepherd king, this one who loves you like that, <laughs> And you will gladly give up relying on false gods, and you will seek him with all your heart.